Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 3. Just a little confession before we get started. I hate doing introductions. Seems so cheesy. What do I got to do? Warm up a crowd? Tell a few stories? It's just, I don't know. I'd rather just get into straight into the text and let the Lord speak instead of dumb old me. Good. What we will see here today, though, is a divine, a divine drama. It's a love. In a sense, it's a chick flick. Um, <laughs> it's going to come in three parts. And I hope you catch them as they come back. It's, we expound upon them. Um, I guess the best thing to do is give a little bit of background in Hosea, because we're starting out in chapter 3, so you might want to know what's going on in chapters 1 and 2. Hosea, first of all, is what we'd consider the first book of what's commonly referred to as the Minor Prophets. Um, They're called the Minor Prophets not because they're less important as, let's say, uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Rather, they're referred to as the minor prophets because their messages just were a little bit smaller. So if you want to look at it this way, they're really good communicators. They really are. They could take huge, huge doctrinal things and uh, pour it into just a few chapters. Well, the book of the minor prophets starts off with this man, Hosea. We don't know a lot about him. In fact, in the Bible, this is the only... Uh, reference to him. Now, he was, like Jonah, a prophet to the northern ten tribes of Israel during the reign of starting with King Jeroboam II all the way down to Israel's last king. This would have went on from 755 B.C. to 710 B.C. Um, Now, during Jeroboam II's reign, and I think this is important, we get into our minds. If we don't understand this, the story doesn't make as much sense. Jeroboam II, during his reign, Israel had experienced a prosperity that was unparalleled uh, up to that time. It would have reflected in some ways the prosperity that this northern tribe had under King Solomon. There was peace finally. Trade was prosperous. Agriculturally, it was abundant. And ironically, the great blessings of God, of peace and prosperity to the northern kingdom, these people chose to turn their back on the Lord. They chose to to worship idols of the Canaanites rather than the Lord who had given them all these blessings. It'd be foolish of me to just not go on and just to say, isn't that always the trap? When we have plenty, we can feel sufficient in ourselves. We feel like we don't need God. We feel like we have our life planned out. And yet when the Lord causes that all to crash down, it's then when it is easier to seek the Lord. 
Great prosperity often brings a great temptation with it. Now, God commands his prophet Hosea to marry Gomer. And I think the women in this congregation have enough sense not to name their daughter Gomer. Um, interesting thing, Hosea knew what he was getting into. At that time, it appears best to look at it that Gomer was pure, undefiled. Yet he knew in marrying her that she would forsake him to the extent of becoming a prostitute, joined to many other men that their marriage covenant would be defiled. It would be the greatest dagger in the heart of Hosea towards his wife that he loved. Now, the couple had three children and whose names God gave these uh, three children names that were warnings to the ten northern tribes of the judgment that was to come because of their sin. That if they did not turn and repent from their wickedness, this judgment would befall upon them. And yet, I really do think that the book of Hosea is a lot like the book of John. John was the apostle who's known as the one whom Jesus loved. Despite all the sin here, we get to see a glimpse of God's great love towards his people. Despite all the difficulties, despite the waywardness, despite their moral filth. Now that that's all been explained, let's look at chapter 3. The word of the Lord reads... And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman that is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecta of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so that I will also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return And seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come to fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Let's pray. Father, I'm speechless at your love that you display here. 
as depicted between a husband and a wife. One who is righteous and one who is so unrighteous. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts, our minds, to see the truth of your great love for sinners. May we stand amazed, Lord, at your faithfulness to your covenant people. Father, may we hear from you today, not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at verse 1. It starts off with a command. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. God commands Hosea to go love his estranged, unfaithful wife, Gomer. She's gone. He has to go. She has left the house. And I want to look at a few commands, a few truths out of here. He's commanded to go. Hosea couldn't be passive about this. He couldn't kick back on the lazy boy and wait for Gomer to come and return to him. Love does not do that. It would take great strength and effort for this man to go do this. People knew him to be a man of God and a prophet. People knew what his wife had done in such a close-knit community. In one sense, it would be a shameful thing. Now, people at that time, the Jews at that time, had a system where they tried to do everything to, to be honorable and do everything to avoid shame. And here's this man seeking after his wife who had so debased herself by her adulterous lifestyle. And yet God says, go. Go. Secondly, he was to go again. He was commanded to go again. He had already at once sought out her love and won it. The two were married. It would have been one thing for her to turn to this lifestyle before the betrothal, before the marriage. But now the pain of all of this has been upon Hosea. Would he humble himself? Would he be willing to forgive? Would he put aside his own honor as a prophet of God and seek after one who had so wrecked his reputation in his family life? Third, He's commanded to go and love. 
to love. This was not just a go, get her, take her back home, then treat her with the cold shoulder for the rest of her life. To love. Gomer had displayed a lack of love towards Hosea. Yet despite her unfaithfulness, God commands Hosea to love her. What would this look like? Well, Paul gives us a clue. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That is precisely what God was calling Hosea to do. Sometimes that's the hardest with the ones we're closest to. Because the ones we're closest to can hurt us the deepest at times. But God commanded Hosea to love Gomer. There's one last command in here, and we might not see it right off the bat. But our senses would draw us to this sense. It seems like God is calling Hosea to do something that's not fair. It's not fair. She's the one that left. She's the one that has been with so many men and defiled the marriage bed. According to even the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, Hosea had the lawful right to divorce her. He could disown her. According to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, Hosea had the legal right to justly put Gomer to death. He could either divorce her or destroy her. He had that right legally. And here God is telling him to go again in love, the one who had hurt him so deeply. What God was commanding him to do seems to violate our whole sense of fairness. Gomer was the one that had been doing things that were wrong. Hosea was in the right Gomer broke the marriage covenant, and it would have seemed fair that Hosea would be free to just forget about her and move on with his life. Yet it's not an issue of fairness, it's an issue of faithfulness. Say it again it's not an issue of fairness. It's an issue of faithfulness. 
Hosea, in all fairness, could have just walked out, left it alone, not taken Gomer back. But in doing so, he would not be faithful to the commands of God. He would, being, he would have been disobeying what the Lord commanded him to do. Isn't this true of other things in Scripture? In a similar way, does not God call us to love our enemies? To pray for those who persecute us? It doesn't seem fair to do that. By their actions, they don't deserve love and prayer. But if we do not do those things, we will not be faithful to the Lord's command in Matthew 5, 44. In this life, God never promised that things will be fair. There's sin dominating this world right now. How can it be fair? Our fairness lies in the world yet to come, our true home, where there will be no sin, so fairness will reign. In this life, God commands us to be faithful. Faithful. May the Lord help us to do those things the hard things. Moving on in verse 1. We get to what I would call the interpretive principle. It's the key that unlocks everything in this chapter. It's what this chapter is really all about because if you read the whole book, this is really the end of the story of Hosea and Gomer. And it's this verse that unlocks everything else and why God moves on to the relationship between him and Israel. Notice what it says. Go again, love a woman that is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Here it is. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. The dramatic narrative of Hosea and Gomer played a bigger picture in God's sovereign will. Yes, Hosea and Gomer are real people with real struggles, real problems, a really messed up relationship. But God intended by his sovereign choice and purpose, is that the story of their lives would run parallel with the divine drama of God in Israel. Let's look at a few things. Hosea was married to Gomer. Just as, in a way, Israel was betrothed by God, married to God. You can look at Hosea 2, 19 through 20, and a few other passages in Scripture for that. Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, just as Israel was unfaithful to the Lord. Hosea loved Gomer. He loved her. Just as the Lord loves his people, his chosen and elect nation, the Israelites, despite their sin, 
finish up verse 1. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to these other gods and love cakes of raisins, despite the fact that they were God's chosen people, a holy nation, the apple of God's eye, Israel forsook her creator and Lord and worshipped the gods of the neighboring kingdoms around them, namely the Canaanites. They're two main gods that are oftentimes connected and what the people would be worshipping at this time were the gods of Baal and the Asherah, or alternatively sometimes in Scripture, the Ashtoreth. Archaeology backs this up with evidence that these were the gods of the northern kingdom during this time. They were rampant, prevalent. The Lord was Israel's husband, not these false gods. And therefore, it was paramount the spiritual adultery, the turn away from the Lord and the worship of the gods of the Canaanites. Israel whored themselves out. Just like Gomer. Put yourself in Hosea's shoes. Think of the anger. The grief. Think of the jealousy. His wife was loving other men with the love that was due him. The Lord assuredly was more grieved, more angry, more jealous of the love of Israel that was due him. The raisin cakes are an interesting thing here in the text. I've studied this out. There's way too many opinions on it. Since it's connected, since it's connected with these other gods, I've come to the conclusion that these raisin cakes are spoken about are made from these pressed grapes. Like the Canaanites, what they would do is they'd press these grapes into the image of these cakes that were, that were female in appearance. And they used these cakes in these sacrificial feasts and they offered them up in the worship of the honor of the queen of heaven. You can read about this in Jeremiah 17.8 and Jeremiah 44.19. Now, Ashtoreth was considered by the Canaanites as the queen of, queen of heaven. They believed that her union with their supreme false deity, El, produced the offspring of Baal. 
And that is why oftentimes the Bible will put together that Ashereth and Bel in the same sentence. They were connected. They were worshipped greatly because they were both, in a sense, fertility god and goddess. And this is the craziness about idolatry. All forms of false worship really boils down to the fact of I'm in control, I'm going to do some things, please God, and I'm going to get what I want. So the people here, in worshiping these gods, they would go through some excessive means of doing this. But they would worship them and give these gods their love so that they would be financially wealthy. That they would have many children. That their land would give a great harvest. That their businesses would prosper. We see this all the way down through Scripture, even into the times of the New Testament, where the chief god of Ephesus was a fertility goddess. Now think of the Lord. How painful must it have been for him how grieved and how sorrowful must he have been. But so bless his people with overwhelming abundance. Like I said, it rivaled, in a sense, the abundance that the United Kingdom had under King Solomon. And instead of his people turning to him with thanks and adoration in worship, and sacrificial giving, and further devoting themselves because the Lord is good. No, they turn their backs on the Lord, and just like everyone else, they chase after their dream more, 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 more. And they attribute all of this to the gods of their age, these false deities. Just as Gomer had sunk in so low, these ten northern tribes had sunk very low. They, like a pig, wallowing in their filth, they were wallowing in their sin. Let's look at verse 2. It's my favorite verse of the whole thing. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver silver, and basically a bushel and a half of barley. Do you notice the first four words? So I bought. Gomer in her sin had sunk so desperately low in her infidelity that she had become the property of another. She was a slave. 
order to restore their marriage and obey God's command to love her, it's going to cost Hosea something, not just time and effort, now financial resources. He had to literally go and buy back his wife. Now, there are three ways somebody could become a slave in the ancient world. There's first of all what we'd call conquest. A foreign power or nation would defeat your nation. And if you weren't killed in the battle, that other nation could, by means, make you their slaves. Secondly, it could be by birth. You could become a slave in the ancient world. Both your parents were slaves to another. When you were born, you would automatically be a slave. But it's this third and last one that obviously Gomer would fall under by debt. Out of the lust in her heart, thinking that this was the right thing to do, thinking she could make a living at it, God did not prosper her. God did not bless her wickedness. God had a bigger plan for her. She had to be broken before she could be fixed. She had to be brought down low before she could be redeemed. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Set the scene in our minds. She's brought up in the marketplace where they would sell slaves. Many of them that day. The free people, people who would be putting out bids, are in the audience. They would parade her up, then strip her down naked. What insecurity and shame. Undressed, ashamed, utterly lowered down to the place of a common animal. The eyes of prospective bidders scanning her up and down, trying to put a monetary value of her worth before they put in a bid. This is what sin brings us to. It's pleasurable for a time, but it brings destruction. I'm sure the fruit Adam and Eve ate tasted really good. But when the Lord called to them and they noticed their nakedness, Now terror gripped over them. Shame. Sin had its devastating blows upon the prophet's wife. 
considered this, how, false, how far she had fallen, so disgraced. The main amount given here is 15 shekels of silver. Sin in her lifestyle had so devastated and devalued her that she was only sold for half the price of a common slave. 30 silver shekels, according to Exodus 21, 32, would be the price of a common slave. She wasn't even worth half of a regular slave. Sin had destroyed her. Now, in a similar sense, Israel had become slaves to their passions, their idolatry, their sin when they abandoned the Lord God. Think about it. Hosea walks up in the marketplace. The bids start happening. Two shekels, three, four, five, six, fifteen, says Hosea. Fifteen in a bushel of barley. Fifteen in a bushel and a half of barley. Sold. Hosea would put a robe on her. And lead her away. God, in a similar way, seeking after his rightful bride, the Lord goes into the marketplace of this world of sin and he redeems, he delivers Israel from their defilement. To redeem or redemption means to deliver or rescue something by paying a price. When we declare God to be the redeemer, that's what we are saying to him, about him. He purchased us by a price. And we will talk about that price a little later. Such is the unfailing love that this great, majestic, redeeming God has for his covenant people. Listen to Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. but we must move on. And we get to a sense where some hard verses, but beautiful for how it all ends up in verse 5. We're going to look at Israel's present state right now. Verses 3 and 4. And he said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without 
king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod and household gods. Although Gomer had been redeemed by, from her harlotry, I want you to notice something from the text. There's no mention that she ever had a change of heart. She still lusted after other men. Reading it and taking this apart in the Hebrew language, here's what's going on. She still desired her lovers. So Hosea had to take her away into seclusion for a long time to prevent her from going back to prostitution. Gomer was to remain isolated from her lovers during this time in order to force her to change her ways. Although Hosea redeemed Gomer, he did not immediately become intimate with her again. It would take time to restore Gomer. The statement, so will I also be to you, indicates Hosea's total commitment to his wife during her isolation. At the proper time, Hosea would woo Gomer back to the marital love that they once had for each other. Now, Gomer's experience of isolation is ultimately a foreshadow of Israel, the ten northern tribes, their isolation that God has used to deliver them from idolatry. It truly is their present state. One thing that you will say about the Israelite people is this, I mean... There is a remnant that believe in Jesus as the Messiah. There's a bigger portion, but not even that big, that believes in a Judaism that is more aligned with the Pharisees and the teaching of the time of Christ. Most of them are not spiritual at all, very secular. In a sense, God has kept them away from their idols. He's isolated them. And this has been her condition ever since she chose Caesar to rule over her in preference to the Christ, the Christ of God. Every detail here in verse 4 is amazing in its accuracy. There's a threefold and I hope you got this, without phrases in there. First of all, they'd be without king or prince. Secondly, without sacrifice or pillar. And third, without ephod or household gods. So God was ultimately saying that, first of all, that Israel would be without a sovereign political system of government, without king or prince. This has been destroyed and remain, has remained for many centuries. Secondly, without ceremonial religion, without sacrifice or pillar, 
Israel's sacrificial system was ultimately eliminated because it was so corrupted with Baal worship and amongst other things. Even the pillars to their idols would cease. God had outlawed that activity in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 22. Third, they'd be without cultic objects. The ephod spoken here was not the ephod that the high priest of Israel wore. That was for the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom here, this is actually speaking of an idol used to hope to determine the future. The household gods were similar small idols of divination. And so Israel has been stripped of their civil leaders, ceremonial religious system, and even the cultic objects of worship. Like Gomer, Israel, even yet today, is isolated as God is trying to take her out of the spiritual adultery in a way left in exile to meditate on their sinful ways. During this time, God has returned to his place. We see that from Hosea 5.15. And here's the cool thing. He waits for Israel to seek him. Hosea 6.1 speaks of that. Now, it would be a dreadful thing if the whole story of Hosea ended here. Look at verse 5. Israel has a glorious future. It says, Afterward, the children of Israel, they shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. When this period of isolation is over, God will use this terrible, terrible period yet to come, the great tribulation, to bring Israel to a place of repentance and reconciliation. This is what is spoken about, and this is the hope of Israel. Zechariah 12.10 talks about the time when Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced. They'll look upon Jesus. And they will mourn like the mourning of the death of their firstborn. There'll be a day when the Israelites will wholeheartedly turn to the Lord Jesus, repent of their rejection of him, According to Zechariah 13.1, God will apply the blood of Jesus to the Israelites. Their sin will be covered. There will be a fountain in that day opened up for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Every Israelite who endures through the seven-year tribulation and comes through the other side will be saved, 100% of them. That is my thought on it. I believe that is what the scripture says. The apostle Paul wrote in Romans 11:26, in this way all Israel will be saved. All Israel. Israel will have a place of prominence during Jesus's millennial reign, and thus God will restore goodness. We've read about that in Hosea 3 to his people who will worship 
with fear, with awe. The greater King David, the one in his line, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he sits on the Davidic throne to reign over his chosen nation. And at that day, all of the promises that God gave to Abraham will be 100% fulfilled. Now, we've went through this. And in our minds, we must ask why. Why would God love Israel in such a way? It doesn't seem like they deserve God's love. They haven't earned it. The simple answer is that God made a covenant with Abraham. God is always faithful to his promises. In this covenant, God promised Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites, offspring, land, a great nation, divine blessing and protection, and he blessed and he promises that the Messiah would come through him, through his offspring. That is how through Abraham all the nations of the world will be blessed. He had promised this in chapter 12 and then we get to chapter 15 and God is there with Abraham. They cut a covenant, which is often referred to in the Old Testament. They literally take some animals and chop them in half, spreading the animals apart. The blood is running in. God sends Abraham into a sleep. Get this, God alone passes through the pieces of the cut-up animals. Normally, when you made a covenant or a contract, both parties would pass through the animals. Meaning, we both have obligations. We both have something to do. And typically these contracts, unlike today, would be so serious, they were literally saying, if I break my end of the the deal, may I be like that animal. I deserve death. Here God alone is saying, if I don't give to you what I say I'm going to give to you, Abraham, I deserve to die. Abraham doesn't walk on through either. He's asleep. It wasn't because Abraham was a good guy that God chose to bless him. God chose to bless him because he's God. He's the sovereign ruler. God's faithfulness will be the reason why Israel will prosper in the future. Consider this. Name one Hittite today. Name one Jebusite today. Name one Philistine today. You can't. Those people are gone. And yet here is this nation that has lived without a home for over 2,000 years. How? How did they still remain a people? The Lord made a promise and he's going to keep it. Now you might say, okay, Good, God keeps his promises. This still is really all about the love of 
Hosea to Gomer, or God's love between himself and the Israelites. But last time I'm checked, I'm not of Jewish descent. What about me? We Gentiles of Christ's church have been brought into a covenant relationship with the Lord. With God, along with the Israelites in a way. We call this the new covenant. It seems clear amongst Scripture, especially since mainly Gentile churches like the church in Corinth were instructed upon the Lord's Supper, and even in the text, they're celebrating this new covenant that they were brought into. Israelites were loved by God because God made a covenant with them through Abraham. We of Christ's true church. We have been brought into covenant relationship with the Lord. God has given believers the regenerating power of the new birth, adopted us into his family. According to Ephesians 5, he has taken us to be Christ's bride and has given us his spirit as a pledge, a guarantee that we are in this new covenant and thus will enjoy eternity with him. So really quickly, I want to just go back and look over Hosea chapter 3 again. And this time, actually, let's see the parallels between us and the church and Israel. What would we share as Christ's bride? Look at verse 1. We looked at this and we saw the idolatry that was going on. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. We don't need anybody to teach us how to have idols. And our idolatry in in Paramount, if we're God's people, is adultery. We have not been faithful to Him. Even after our conversion and entrance into God's family, we, like Gomer and Israel, have times, at times, chased after the sinful lusts of our idolatrous hearts. We were unsatisfied with the providences of our husband, Jesus And so we we chased after the things that we perceive can give us joy and happiness and security. I have a huge list here of different idols. I just want to go over a couple. What about the idol of self? We can love self way too much. Balance your thoughts. What if on this side of the scale was your thoughts about yourself? And what if on this side of your scale was your thoughts about the Lord Jesus? Which way would it tip?
That right there should leave us humbled in the dust, weeping for mercy, for our idolatry. Who's worthy of our thoughts, our brain? God gave us a brain not to think about ourselves, but to think in ways where we may worship Him. How about we can make ourselves an idol when we seek to be the center of every conversation? Every conversation, we speak highly about ourselves. We do not carefully listen when others speak. We're just waiting for the opportune time to interrupt so we could talk about ourselves again. Or how about we make the idol of ourselves when we're unjoyful in the trials that we have in life, the hardships. We're thinking somehow God has unjustly slighted us because we are really good and righteous and we deserve better than this. We think that God has placed unnecessary sorrow because we feel ourselves to be so important. How about our culture and ourselves being consumed with the vanity of our appearance? Just think how much money will be made this year in just plastic surgery. I'm not talking about the plastic surgery that's needed, like somebody gets in a horrible automobile accident, they got to reset the person's face. I'm talking somebody saying, I deserve to look better than this, and so I'm going to change my appearance. How about we love ourselves when we don't listen to a loving rebuke? when we sin. We'd rather make excuses for our sins. How about when we spend excessive times on entertainment, really with the sole purpose of loving ourselves and appeasing ourselves? We need no one to teach us how to love ourselves, and we struggle with this. This is our idol, most cherished. And oftentimes, even though we know that we're a sinner, we'll forsake the Lord in relationship with Him, our love to love ourselves more than Him. How about materialism? That's another idol. We can place our security in tangible objects like our bank account balance, our job, our house. Rather than resting in the security that God himself provides. Real security. Eternal security. How about we worship Materialism, when we work excessive hours to pay for stuff we don't need. All the while, our family life is junk because we're not there. You can't raise your kids right, so they become twice the sons and daughters of hell because we love materials. We love things more than we love God. How about we love materialism when we're not willing to sacrifice personal expense for the giving of God's kingdom? 
or to meet the love out of love, meet other people's genuine needs. Or how about when our affections are and our energy is directed toward maintaining what we have rather towards the Lord of love? When our affections, our desires are in things. What's the answer to that? Verse 2. Redemption. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, the wonderful love of God towards his covenant people caused him to redeem them from their slavery to idolatry. And how does God redeem his church, his true church? Through the same means. That he first redeemed us when he saved our souls by his perfect life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. First of all, we are slaves by nature to sin, according to John 8, 34. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, it says. And thus, as slaves to sin, we're under the curse of the law. We're owned by the demands of the law. We haven't met them. We're under debt to the law. We're slaves. We're not free. Like Gomer, we've been so debased. We've marred this image that God has given us. He's given us his image, the image of the creator, and we have just so stained ourselves with our self-righteousness and our sin. God gave even this creation and as a way that we could proclaim his goodness. And what have we done? We've acted as if this creation was here for us. We've used it as a stage to act out our sinful lusts. And to worship the creation rather than the creator. Yet when all seemed lost, God sent his son Jesus. Fully God and fully man. To meet the requirements of the law. He did not sin. Therefore, he was not under the curse of the law. He was truly a free man, not a slave. And as a free man, therefore, he can buy slaves. A slave can't buy another slave. A slave has no money of their own. So here Jesus, the only one truly free because he fully fulfilled the law with his perfect life, kept every one of the requirements that there is because he is God. And as man he did that, he enters into the marketplace to buy us at the cost of his own life. Full payment for our sin has been seen in the fact that after three days Jesus rose from the dead. The check cleared, sin paid for, done. To tell us, die, it is paid, it is finished. Illustration might help us here. God the Father was the auctioner. He said, What is the bid for these wretched, poor, hopeless, debased, enslaved sinners? Jesus steps up, declaring, I bid the price of my blood. 
Father says, sold to the Lord Jesus Christ for the price of his blood. For there can be no greater price than that. And so we were no longer slaves of sin, but slaves to righteousness, as it was read in Romans chapter 6, 18. Jesus Christ bought us, took them to himself, clothed us, not with the filthy rags of our old unrighteousness, but the robes of his righteousness, a perfect righteousness. And he says to you, he said then, and he says to you today, if you're a believer You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. This is how God loves you. This is what the Lord Jesus has done for you on your behalf. And like Israel, God redeemed you unto a glorious future with him where we will bask in the full radiance of God's goodness eternally. Well, we with William Cooper rejoice in this glorious truth. That man, that hymn writer wrote, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying land, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. So, I don't want to give us many applications. Time is fleeting. It seems like the more applications you give, (laughs) the less of them you remember. But I do want to give you two. I ask for your prayer consideration over these things. I ask you to search your heart. The Lord commands you to do so. First of all, as God is faithful towards us, let us strive by grace to be faithful to him. And the key word is there is by grace. We are unfaithful. But we should be moved by to faithfulness by Christ's love for us. Joined to him by spiritual marriage, we took his name and became his. You and I were once Miss Sinner. Now we are Mrs. Christian. Now we must live by grace carefully to keep his name unspotted before this world. Have you done that? Or have you dishonored his name by your actions? If that is so, remember that the price he paid for your love was his own death at Calvary. Beg him to seal you. With that love keeping you 
and perfecting you until the day that you stand before him and before his father at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Secondly, not only should we be faithful to the Lord by grace, and I must say I'm the least likely person to be speaking of this, and you'll understand it after I say it. There needs to be perseverance in the marriages at this church by love and grace. We seemingly are always aware to abandon the standards of the word of God. Come down to the standards of this world. We are ready to say that such love demonstrated by the love of Hosea for Gomer is impossible for us. But it is not impossible if we are truly united to Christ through the Holy Spirit and are allowing him to love through us. You may say, do you mean to tell me if my spouse runs away from me and commits adultery that I'm still to be faithful? That's not fair. True, it's not fair. True. Who said anything about fairness? It's just an expression of true love. We're called to faithfulness. And it is in obedience to God in such difficult circumstances that the great spiritual victories are actually won. Look at I get it. I don't have to be married to get it. It has to be hard for two sinners to live together in peace. I understand women, sometimes you look at your husband and you think, I have married the biggest idiot on this world. He is so focused on self. And I understand husbands, sometimes you just wonder, oh my goodness, will she ever stop nagging me? We're called to love like Hosea loved Gomer. Do you love the Lord? It's going to be a dying to self. And with grace and understanding, with eyes focused on Jesus, living as one flesh. And God give us, give you the grace to do that. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your goodness towards your people, both your Israelites and us. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. We, like sheep, have gone astray many times, not just before salvation, many times afterward. Lord, help us with our eyes to see this world in a dim light. The passions and desires of this world would be fading away. But he or she that does the will of God, will of you, Lord, will abide forever. 
Enlarge our hearts to the things that you love, Lord. Make us a willing people today in the day of your power to live for you, to take up our cross even, to die for you, for you are worthy. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.